All right. This is gonna be it's gonna be a little bit meaty today, but I'll try and I'll try and do my best to make it interesting and story tell some of this. Last week we started our new Linton sermon series where we're looking at the world that is behind and around Jesus. And we're doing that just to try and understand the conversations that he was in and what he was trying to do as we head there into Easter. So I'm not going to cover hundreds of years this morning like I did last week, but we are going to pick the story up with the Seleucid Empire and the Maccabees, which is the story that's told by our Jewish friends every Hanukkah. And so I think before we, we dive into the story as such, I just think it's really helpful to understand that the, the point in history in which we're at here, which is just a little bit before when Jesus comes on the scene, um, it's a time when you've got two major empires, the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire, are both um, sort of vying for this part of the world, right? The Greek Empire was sort of on its way out. The Roman Empire was ascending. Um, if any of you guys have ever played like Super Mario Smash Brothers, I think of it as like, yeah, PvP, right? It's like Rome versus Greece, and it's over a period of time. They are hashing out some of the territory. And so that's what's going on. And so this land we talked about last week on Zoom, the land that is Israel and Palestine and Lebanon and Syria, that little area of the, of the world there, has just always been roiled by empires because of its location, right? It's a, it's a piece of land that connects Africa and Asia and Europe, and so it has always been um, vied for for economic reasons, for trade routes, and to be able to move like soldiers and military around. And lest we think this is something that you know just happened a long time ago, at least when I was in college, Egypt and Israel were the two largest recipients of U.S. foreign aid. I looked up this last week, and that's still the, they're in the top four. It's Afghanistan for other reasons now, then Israel, then Jordan, and um, then Egypt, right? And so the the reason is the same. We may not have soldiers like you know in that area, but we also, as the American Empire, are trying to make sure that we are able to protect trade routes, the Suez Canal, be able to move our military. So I think sometimes when we read the scripture, we we identify with sort of the underdogs, and at times that can be appropriate. But we are a little bit more like the Roman or the Greek empires, right, in this, in this region. So that's what, that's what we're coming into here. And I want to share this story the way my favorite professor used to do it. I said this last week online, too. My favorite history professor would come in, and she would write a few key terms on the whiteboard, and then she would say, actually, it was a chalkboard because it was that long ago. She'd say, let me tell you a story. So I've got some key terms on that, that sheet you picked up. Let me tell you a story. So this was a long time ago, about 150, 200 years before the birth of Jesus. And the setting is that Jewish communities had become established all over the Near East at this time, from Egypt to what is modern-day Syria and Turkey and Iraq. And all of these communities, you know, they had some cultural differences. They often spoke local languages but they were united by their shared stories and rituals that were contained in the Torah. The Torah is just the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes it's called the law, right? So the stories and the practices in Torah are what bound them together, and it's really key to Jewish identity. An additional unifying link for the Jewish community that was located particularly in Jerusalem was that they also had this large temple where they could go and they could worship together. Right? And it was standing on the site where Solomon's splendid temple of old had once stood. And this newer temple was not nearly as grand, but it was cherished. 
because it was a Jewish beacon in the middle of Greek culture, because Jerusalem at that time was just awash in Greek culture. So there was a Greek leader. His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. You don't need to remember that. If, if you're Jewish, that, that, that name will probably roll off your tongue because it's told at Hanukkah here. I was trying to, I was asking Rachel, I was like, how can I get us to like remember this? Like, what's that? And then I realized, in, in the, as I was looking through some other history, that our Jewish friends at the time came up with, with a solution. They called him the madman. So we'll call him the madman. Because his name, Epiphanes, meant God manifest, which he certainly embraced. But the Jewish people called him Antiochus for Epimenes, which meant madman. So we've, we've got an antagonist here. This Greek leader, the madman, found himself in need of money to fight the Romans who were nipping at his heels up on the northern border. He's overseeing Jerusalem. He needs money. Turns out, a pretty good source of money in those days was religious temples, right? Temples would often use precious metals in their ritual objects and in their altars. And since they were considered sacred and hopefully, you know, untouchable by armies, they would often serve as places for people to deposit their money to be held for safekeeping, right? We can see where that goes. Uh-oh, right? Word got around to Mr. Madman that he just might hit a jackpot if he would go and plunder that Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which he eventually did, and we'll get to that. But stealing from the temple there wasn't the only point of tension between the madman and the Jewish people there in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. The madman was also heavily invested in creating a monoculture meaning he very much wanted the Jewish people to become Hellenized, or he wanted them to become more Greek, right? He wanted them to assimilate. He wanted to impose Greek fashion and Greek language and Greek education and philosophy and Greek religious practices and Greek, you know, physical training on the local people. And that's a strategy that empires often use to try and unify a divided people, especially when there are significant minority populations. Here in the United States, Right? The white colonizing settlers certainly tried to do that to the indigenous populations who live here. Our government took children from tribal nations and forced them to receive an American education, learn English, become Christian. Right? And the native nations are still rightfully upset about this. When I was studying in China 15 years ago, I was out in a Tibetan area, and there was a similar point of contention between the Chinese government and the Tibetans. Right, so when I was there, the Chinese government passed a law saying that Tibetans could no longer be educated in their native languages, because there's many dialects within Tibetan, that they had to be taught in Mandarin. This was around 2008, and so there were several major protests that started to go on in the Tibetan cities. People were self-immolating, right? Tibetans were setting themselves on fire in protest. This is the degree of anger that these kinds of empire-inducing changes inspire. Right? When oppressed people groups are being drained of their identity, minority groups tend to fight tooth and nail for their identities because, as we touched on last week, it's key for survival when you're an oppressed group. Right? So this level of anger is not dissimilar to how the Jewish people felt about what the madman was imposing on them. However, there's nearly always a subset of the minority people group who support the assimilation, usually because they benefit from it, Although I think we could also say more charitably, because assimilation is also a survival tactic, right? Trying to stay alive and make sure that your kids and your grandkids can live and thrive. A situation here, also not different. Some people who are from the Jewish aristocracy, including many of the priests who were serving at the big temple, 
they were embracing the changes and they were adapting to Greek culture and supported that and they felt others should do the same. So one day there was a man, his name was Jason or Joshua. So Jason was his Greek name. Joshua was his Hebrew name, which was pretty common. Jason decided he'd like to be made high priest of the Jerusalem temple. And so what he did was he went to the madman and he offered him a bribe. And he offered the madman the two things that he knew he wanted the most, money to fight the Romans and a promise to help the madman Hellenize the Jewish culture. So the madman, of course, said, sure, I'll take you up on that offer. The legitimate high priest had to flee. He was found trying to get away, fleeing to Egypt. He was assassinated. One of his sons did make it to Egypt. He ended up establishing a little temple in exile that became an important worship center um, for many centuries after that, which is another story. But Jason assumes the new high priesthood. And one of the first things he did was he established a Greek gymnasium in the heart of Jerusalem. So if you know anything about Greek gymnasiums, you know these are places where sports were played in honor of Greek gods and goddesses. And these sports were usually played in the nude right? Much like the original Olympics. So the, the, the pagan God worship and the nudity tended to offend the sensibilities of many of the Jewish people. And what's more, the nudity also highlighted the practice of circumcision, right? So in order to try and appear, um, I want to say more modern, but modern's like a modern term, so it's not that helpful. Uh, more uh, urban, in order to not stand out, many Jewish families started to give up the practice of circumcision, and so the gymnasium then was seen as this kind of major milestone in elevating Greek culture in Jerusalem and diluting a practice that was foundational to Jewish identity and to Torah keeping. So after Jason's tenure, he was succeeded by a high priest whose name was Menelaus. And he actually outdid Jason's bribing of the madman. He traded the temple vessels, and then he personally helped the madman plunder the temple. It's even said that Menelaus, like there's stories of him where he was scraping off the gold leaf, leafing himself off of the different temple vessels and structures. I think it's not likely that he literally did that, but I think that that story lives on because the people at the time felt like he was the kind of man who would have done that. Right, so people are infuriated. By now, a large portion of the Jewish population is really angry. They're starting to rise up. And so to squash any rebellions from happening, the madman did what many dictator types do. He used violence, right? He went in, he destroyed parts of the city, he killed a bunch of people, he knocked down part of the city walls, and then he did something really atrocious. He built a giant military citadel right next to the big temple in Jerusalem. It was called Acre, and he filled it with Greek soldiers, right? So we've got Greek soldiers overlooking the temple. He also confiscated every copy of the Torah that he could get a hold of, and he destroyed them. He outlawed circumcision. He outlawed all the Jewish festivals. He outlawed the keeping of the Sabbath. And then he started building pagan altars all around the city, and Jewish people were forced to eat pork under duress to prove their loyalty to the Seleucid Empire, their disloyalty to Torah, and to the Creator God that they worshipped, right? So we're talking severe religious oppression. And then if that weren't intolerable enough, in December 167 BCE, the Jewish temple itself was converted into a pagan temple, and pork was offered on the main altar as a sacrifice to the Greek gods. And then the madman demanded that he himself be worshipped as a god, which wasn't that unusual among Greek rulers, but it was outlandish to the monotheistic Jewish people. So meanwhile, out in a village called Modin, there was a family of priests. 
and was led by a man named Matthias and his five sons. And they were leading this guerrilla warfare campaign against the Greek troops. So they were getting into skirmishes with some soldiers and they were going around and damaging some of the pagan altars. And they were starting to cause a real headache for the Greeks. Well, Matthias died and his third son, Judah, um, succeeded him as the leader of this little guerrilla warfare campaign. And he became known as Judah the Hammer or Judah the Maccabee. Right, Judas Maccabeus, you may have heard him call. Judah the Hammer. So Judah the Maccabee attracted more and more rebels to his cause, and they started to make some pretty significant military gains. About three years later, the madman dies. He was away in Persia fighting, um, gets killed, and this provides an opportunity. Right, Judah and his guerrilla army were able to march into Jerusalem, and they were able to overtake that military citadel that had been built right next to the temple, they were able to overtake Accra, and then they marched into the temple and they reclaimed it as sacred Jewish religious space, right? So this was a really big win. And all of the details of reclaiming the temple are described in a couple of books, First and Second Maccabees, um, which are part of the Old Testament. Like, so if you grew up Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, those books are in your, what we would call the Old Testament. They are not in the actual Hebrew Bible, and they're not in Protestant Bibles for reasons that I think have to do with Martin Luther and some of his own anti-Semitism, but that's a whole different story. But they are in some of the Bibles that some of you may have grown up with. The story of the oil lasting eight days, I believe that comes from the Talmud, which is essentially Jewish commentary. And the story says that when Judah the Maccabee and his troops came into the temple to reclaim it, they wanted to ritually cleanse it, but they could only find one bottle of sacred oil that could be used. And it would take eight days to press new olive oil and then to make it ready for use, um, for ritual use. So what they did was they took the oil that they had and they lit a candle in a temple and the oil that should have lasted for only one day lasted for eight. And that's why Hanukkah is called the Festival of Lights. And it's why the menorah has eight candles that are lit each Hanukkah. You'll probably notice last December if you were here, we had, there's a, a large menorah that was being lit right outside our doors here um, by TBE. So Judah the Maccabee reclaimed the temple, but Jerusalem was still technically under Greek rule. And so the, the Seleucid Greeks, they appointed a new high priest. Judah and his followers are like, nah, this guy's compromised. We're not going to, we're not going to follow this new high priest. So more fighting ensues. And eventually what happens is Judah is able to sort of declare a free and independent territory. Um, and he was trying to be recognized as that by the Roman Empire. He did get that recognition. The Greeks still refused to recognize the independent territory, and so Judah kept fighting. And he was eventually killed on the battlefield and succeeded by two of his brothers, Jonathan and then Simeon. The tragedy here is that both Jonathan and Simeon ended up behaving the way the priestly classes before them had done. They ended up adopting Greek culture, and it seemed like they were just fighting for their own political interests. Simeon eventually had himself named both ruler of the independent territory as well as the high priest of the temple, right? So he was king and priest, and he established what became known as the short-lived Hasmonean dynasty. But by the time he had done this, he had completely lost the support of most of the common Jewish people who just saw this dynasty as yet another corrupt dynasty. So I tell this story I know it's 150 years before Jesus, but I tell it because it's in this time that we start to see some development of some of the strands of Judaism that we see in the New Testament. And I think it'll make them a little more understandable. So since the temple in Jerusalem and its priests were seen as corrupt, 
some of the Jewish people started to create like separate little religious communities, right? They just sort of like started boycotting the temple. So they had their own worship enclaves. The best known of these is called the Essenes, and they were sort of a monastic group who took to living in the desert over near the Dead Sea. So they're the ones who are thought to have written the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some scholars believe John the Baptist was an Essene. I think there's very compelling um, evidence for that. So they, they viewed the national religious system and the temple as corrupt. They boycotted it, and they tried to keep the faith pure for such a time as when a, a more righteous priestly class could then be instituted. Right? So they're like, we're just going to hold this little flame over here in the wilderness and hope that there'll come a time when this can be shared again. This was in contrast to the current priestly class who were still serving there in the Jerusalem temple, and they were known as the Sadducees. Right? They make a lot of appearances in the Gospels. The Sadducees were seen as compromised, kind of the corrupt, aristocratic group that were pandering to the Greeks and later to the Romans for power. Not all the Sadducees were priests. Many of them were merchants. Um, but that gives you a little bit of an idea of who the Gospels are interacting with and why. Right? They were the ones who were more pro-assimilation. Um, they were upper class. They were sympathetic to the empires because their, their interests aligned with those empires. And then the Pharisaic class also started to develop at this time. So the Pharisees weren't priests per se, but they were men who were spread throughout the region who wanted to maintain Torah and religious practices in their local communities. Right? They were really protective of Jewish identity, and they were considered experts in the law, right, or experts in Torah. And so after having witnessed decades of like high priest shenanigans and having lived under this severe religious persecution, the Pharisaic class realized they couldn't rely on the priestly class over there at the big temple to help them preserve the practices of the Torah. So what they were trying to do was they were stressing the duty of the individuals to maintain these traditions and these purity laws. And so I don't want to steal Caroline's thunder. She's going to preach on the Pharisees next week. But I think this is a context in which we can better understand them because, you know, the Pharisees have become this sort of straw man bad guy. Uh, for a lot of Western Christianity, and I think that's reductive, and it's actually considered anti-Judaism because modern rabbis, um, like our friends here in the building, consider their practice to have come from the stream of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had many varied beliefs, but the underlying strand for them to understand them was this deep desire to help maintain Jewish religious and cultural identity in a time of turmoil. And they had many arguments about the best way to do this, including arguments with a later rabbi named Jesus who engaged them as peers. So I tend to read Jesus as being in alignment with the underlying beliefs of the Pharisees of trying to preserve Torah and identity, but sometimes clashing or disagreeing at times with some of the Pharisees about the best way to do that. Makes sense? So I want to read this. I'm going to close by reading this bit here from Mark 12. This is a conversation Jesus had been debating with some Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians, who we'll talk about in a couple weeks, basically with the Romans and the upper class and the Pharisees. And then it says, one of the teachers of the law, probably a Pharisee, came and he heard all these people debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. 
And I want us to know that these are directly from Torah, from Leviticus, right? These aren't something that Jesus came up with. He was speaking as a Jewish rabbi within his stream when he gave these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all of your understanding and all of your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, saying whatever is going on at the temple, it's actually more important to love your neighbor as the underlying ethic. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Right? So it's how to love your neighbor, deciding what's loving, deciding what's too burdensome. Those were usually the underlying issues when people, when Jesus was disagreeing with people. So I know that was a little more teaching than preaching, but we are going to still have our meditation here. And I thought we would just take a minute or so. Let's just meditate on this idea of love your neighbor as yourself. And I'll let you know when that time is up, but just Holy Spirit, just speak to our hearts about what it means for our underlying ethic to be love your neighbor as yourself. The Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just help us to understand deep in our bones what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves and to embrace that as the greatest of all of the commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. I ask that you would help that to permeate in our spirituality, permeate our lives, um, and that we would be able to enact that and live that out in a way that shows who you are, that you are a God who is good, a God who is kind, and a God who is love. Amen.